0: this is the sunday messages podcast from cedar valley unitarian universalists in cedar falls iowa and i'm your host kat bean hansen welcome we're glad you're here This week's message was originally given on January 9th. Guest speaker Clark Porter delivers a message called Lessons from the Stream Bank.
1: Hello, thank you for inviting me this morning for your service. I appreciate getting the word out whenever I can. My name is Clark Porter. I work as an environmental specialist for the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, and I also manage my family's farm not far from here. I work uh, with projects with farmers uh, on water quality, uh, which is a a particularly pressing issue here in the state. begin my message here and hope to have a chance to talk with all of you uh, someday about about this and uh, get a chance to meet you in person. I first became aware of water as something special and, dare I say, sacred as a young kid riding my pony behind my grandfather on our farm. He and I would wind our way down a grassy waterway and cross a small stream where the water splashed over rocks in a grove of willows. On hot days, it was almost always cooler there by the creek. Our horses would stop to paw at the water and drink. We would often dismount and stand in the shade, quietly enjoying each other's company. To me, this was a real adventure, as if we had taken a pack string up the continental divide. In a way, those streams are a divide. They cut through the heavily cultivated fields of Iowa and provide little islands of nature of diverse plants, wildlife, and the omnipresent sound of rushing water. My memory of the creek, which we rode to, and many other streams and lakes beside which I have paddled or camped, are intensely personal. These bodies of water are uh, more than a place. It is as if they have a personality that greets you upon arrival. We say things like, the water was inviting, or streams babble, floodwaters hiss and look angry. This may not be mere anthropomorphizing. Recently, New Zealand gave one river the legal status of a person. Bangladesh has done the same for all of its rivers, and India attempted it before legislation was overturned in court. Viewing a river as a person may seem ridiculously romantic to those of us raised in our western post-industrial world yet for um, indigenous communities in particular it makes sense in new zealand it was the indigenous maori who tirelessly championed legislation for their historic historic and sacred river Many indigenous cultures are far less likely to arbitrarily cleave the world into the domains of animate and inanimate, alive, not alive. I say arbitrarily because each scientific advance informs us of how much the world is in flux, of how interconnected and alive it really is. And so perhaps a more personal relationship with a stream is not such a silly idea after all. I'll return to this. 50 years after riding my pony to the creek, I frequently find myself beside Iowa's little streams. Once again, I still relish them as micro-scale wildernesses, as places which cannot quite be tamed nor fully owned. However, like so much wilderness in this world, they are scarred and showing signs of sickness. At least twice per month, sometimes more often, I will be dipping a small plastic sample bottle into a country stream somewhere around here. A satellite's view of these streams will remind you of arteries, capillaries, and veins pulsing through the landscape. And taking a sample of stream water is much like taking a vial of blood from a patient. It reveals much about the health of our land, about us, and about our sins and virtues. So let's examine a water samples equivalent of the blood panel. These results are sent to me on a spreadsheet that I get from a lab in Ames. One of the first items I run into is nitrates. These form when soil bacteria break ammonia down. Nitrates quickly bond with water molecules, which is good for plants who need them and ultimately bad for our water. The next item on the sample spreadsheet is phosphorus. Like nitrates, phosphorus is also critical for plants, but too much can be deathly for aquatic life. A cloudy sample with lots of suspended soil is usually high in phosphorus because phosphorus bonds with soil. Most of the water I test is too high in nitrates and phosphorus These two substances in their several forms are ingredients for something that we call nutrient pollution. This is because in addition to plants, nitrates and phosphorus are nutritious to algae and phytoplankton, which proliferate, choke streams, lakes, the Gulf of Mexico. They die and sink to the bottom. Once there, these dead plants and phytoplankton feed bacteria which then rob the water of oxygen until nothing can live. Currently in the Gulf of Mexico, there is a 6,300 square mile plume of oxygen depleted water, killing all sea life that cannot escape. Iowa, and the way we farm, is responsible for over 20% of the nutrient pollution in the lower Mississippi basin. And yet, Iowa comprises only 4% of the Mississippi watershed Nitrates are also harmful to us if they find their way into our drinking water, and they are. If we were commanded to leach nitrates and phosphorus into our streams, we couldn't intentionally do better than what we do unintentionally. What's the recipe for this secret sauce? We till the soil up and down the slopes next to the streams, assuring it will erode. We put millions of miles of drainage tile in our fields, straight piping water into ditches and streams. We eradicated the perennial prairies and replaced them with seasonal row crops, assuring that no deep live roots are in the soil to absorb nitrates. We add nitrogen to our fields, often up to 180 or more pounds per acre. We also add phosphorus and we spread millions of tons of manure. A bit more about manure, which is probably something you don't often hear in a sermon. (laughs) Sometimes I ask the lab to analyze bacteria contents. Last June, I tested a ditch at the head of a small innocuous looking stream, not more than 12 miles from here. The bacteria content exceeded federal standards for all aquatic life. One whiff of the air was enough to tell me the source. Our state is home to almost 24 million hogs and 3.6 million cattle. The population of the middle Cedar watershed between here and Cedar Rapids is roughly 300,000 people. Yet it has the sewage contribution to the watershed that is equal to Alexandria, Egypt, a city of 5.4 million. How is this so? Hogs, cattle and poultry. The streams that course through our landscape also reflect other uses and abuses of the land. Often they are high in chloride from salting roadways or spraying chemicals. In a recent study of Iowa's streams, the USGS found a mixture of over 14 common herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides throughout our waterways. And nobody knows how all of these chemicals interact. I must often wade through fields and floodplains Not long ago, many flags I used to mark drainage tile were washed away in a heavy rain. And these occur far more often now. They occur in something uh, we in the agricultural community uh, like to call extreme weather to pacify those who would rather deny global climate change. It has never been more important to protect our fields and streams from the influx of water. Yet each year people till the ground, put in more drainage tile, plant to the edge of the creeks, and other grave transgressions. Thankfully, we are no longer allowed to straighten creeks or drain wetlands. Enough damage has been done there to permanently hamper our our land's capacity to retain floodwaters. So we have determined our waters are ailing, but what sort of disease is this? Perhaps we need to back up and take a look at the larger picture. Test samples yield symptoms, not causes. The causes are long-standing. The data tell a story. For thousands of years, this land was dominated by prairies, savanna, and forest. It was laced with an intricate web of streams, rivers, bogs, and wetlands. The people we displaced lived upon it and lived with it. They called it home, but they did not believe they owned it so much as it owned them. By the early 19th century, surveyors had divided Midwest land into a grid of sections and townships, where once the land made an imprint on the map. Now maps were used to force an imprint upon the land. The squares on the grid, townships and sections, became a commodity to be bought and sold as the land rush ensued. Counties, city limits, square fields, and straight fence lines divide the land into commercial and governmental units that do not reflect how water flows around, under, and through the landscape. To this day, those who own and deal in land both fail and often refuse to recognize how water flows under our feet and across our land we are trained they are trained all of us to think only inside fence lines only about our property yet while property may divide us water seeks to connect us when you walk along streams as much as i do you begin to notice how water challenges our notion of property and the schemes that we have for it. There is what we may want to do with the land, and then there is what the water does. We define legal ownership of the land underneath streams by whether the stream can be crossed anywhere or only in distinct spots, and by high water and low water marks. This cobbled definition fails to be as fluid as water itself when encountering water and another ancient element, air, our ideas of property become so frayed and threadbare that they expose the artifice upon which they are built. This artifice, this notion of arbitrarily unitizing land into a commodity, enables the ambition to get the greatest return on our investment. As we wring every drop of profit from the land, the puddle we create percolates and washes downstream carrying all the traces of our foolishness with it. The land may soon forget, but water has a memory. So what are we to do? As surely as the water tells us what is wrong, it also offers insights into how to make it right. In spite of its endangered status, or perhaps because of it, Iowa's water offers hopeful and valuable lessons. First, as I mentioned before, our property divides us, but water seeks to unite us. Because water flowing through and under our land defies property lines, borders, and the artificial polygons of man-made jurisdictions, it has the capacity to draw us together. What an Iowa farmer or city dweller does to water on his or her property impacts neighbors both near and far. Cities downstream, wells on farmsteads, and even fishermen in, the, in Louisiana are affected. Our connection, our connection is foreordained. Second, the act of sharing water forms the foundation of a community. Watersheds invite us to organize a more sensible geographic community, one that respects the contours and gifts of our land. Third, Because water is not simply a resource but also essential for life and a home to many creatures, we must broaden the sense of community to include more than humans. Is there one person, animal, or plant that doesn't rely on water? As the visionary conservationist in Iowan Aldo Leopold wrote in his famous essay on the land ethic, all ethics so far evolved rest upon a single premise that the individual is a member of a community of interdependent parts. The land ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soils, waters, plants, and animals, or collectively, the land. We have arrived at three observations. One, that we recognize how water unites us. Two, that we form a community around this shared life-giving substance. And three, that we expand the circle of our ethical obligations towards all living beings who share the land and water. These three carry the solution to much that ails our society. Idealistic? Yes, of course critical for our survival on this beleaguered planet? Yes, of course. I often think of the farmers I work with to reduce nutrient pollution that they send downstream. Last year in one 23,000 acre watershed, we lost 48 pounds of nitrates per acre to the Cedar River. (laughs) If I asked each farmer to fill a container with 48 pounds of liquid nitrate and dump it in the creek, he or she would rebel. Instead, each pound lost was contributed indirectly through multiple careless practices aimed at making money. We will perish if profitability is the sole measure of our success as farmers, as people, as community members, and as stewards for the next generation. The temporary status of title does not justify entitlement. We will thrive if we value our lessons from the water and nurture our land, our water, and our relationships. Like water, I will conclude by returning to where I started. I mentioned countries that have given the status of personhood to rivers. How might we relate to our water and our land if we referred to either as a who and not a what? What if we saw them as they truly are, alive? And what if we realized that we are indebted to them, that we may belong to them as much as they belong to us? We know the answers to these questions. The challenge is to act like we do. Water is found in many religious rituals throughout the world. As a symbol and substance it cleanses and restores us to wholeness if we learn the lessons water teaches us we too will find our world both cleansed and restored
0: this has been the Sunday messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists the music is by Nathan Moore If you want to learn more about the CVUU, visit our website at www.cedarvalleyuu.org. And you can also find us on Facebook or Instagram at Cedar Valley UU. We welcome visitors to attend our online services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you'd like to learn more about joining us for a service, send us an email at cvupodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.